0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from the New Yorker Magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at the New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The Book of Sand by Jorge Luis Borges, translated from the Spanish by Norman Thomas Di Giovanni, which was published in the New Yorker in October of 1976.
1: He opened the suitcase and laid the book on a table. It was an octavo volume bound in cloth. There was no doubt that it had passed through many hands.
0: The story was chosen by Mosin Hamid, who is the author of four novels, including The Reluctant Fundamentalist and Exit West, which were both finalists for the Man Booker Prize. He joins us from True Brew Records in Lahore, Pakistan. Hi Mosun.
1: Hi, Deborah.
0: So can we start by just talking about why you wanted to read a Borges story today? I know that was important to you, I'm I'm wondering what Borges has meant to you, both as a writer and as a reader.
1: Well, Borges um, is a hugely important writer for me. Uh, When I was looking back at the New York archives, there were so many amazing writers, but I Uh, I suppose I began by thinking of the ones that I most wanted to read. And I was surprised to discover so many Borges stories in The New Yorker. Um, He is a writer I first encountered when I was at university in my senior year uh, last semester. Uh, I took a course on modernist literature, and and Borges was assigned, and I picked up a book called uh, Fictions. And in that book, there was an introduction. Uh, And the introduction, Borges writes that uh, uh, he doesn't see the point of writing multi-hundred-page novels when the idea behind them can be subbed up in a five-minute conversation. Instead, he will write (laughs) fictions that assume the existence of this book already. And I just thought that was brilliant. Um, uh, It made such an impact on me, this, this Borgesian idea of compression. And and then um, as I began to read, uh, I think you know perhaps he's uh, the writer or one of the writers who's influenced me most.
0: Though so on the other hand, you haven't written very much short fiction that I know of. You you tend toward the novel form.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. But I think that uh, uh, I tend to write short novels. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, th- there's I spent a long time writing very short books for the most part, um, and then. Uh, page setting typography makes them sort of look decent, but they're pretty short for the most part. And <laughs> uh, and I think you know that this notion that um, that compression is itself an aesthetic, um, that uh, uh, that there's an efficiency, um, uh, an aesthetic of efficiency that is possible, and that even the very largest issues, which Borges talks about uh, formally. Uh, about human nature, about even spiritual questions, Uh, that such matters can be addressed with very compressed forms, I think has always been an inspiration. Borges uh, thought of himself as a poet very much, not poetic in terms of lyrical writing, uh, but poetic in terms of incredibly compressed uh, meaning Um, and types of, of decompression systems that can be built into prose is something that I think Borges is a pioneer of and that many of us continue to learn from even now.
0: Yeah, I mean, the the, the thrust of the argument in that introduction is that fiction, whether long or short, exists to express an idea, that, that what's central to it is an idea that perhaps could be summed up in a, in a short conversation. Do you feel that that's true of all fiction, that it exists to, to put forward... A thought?
1: Well, I think that fiction uh, exists for multiple reasons. Um, it exists uh, to tell stories. It exists t- to find beauty. It exists um, to communicate politics. It exists to describe our experiences. Um, it also exists to put forward ideas uh, of various kinds. Um, and oftentimes, it is worth asking ourselves, uh, does what we're trying to do require as much space and time as we're giving it. And for me, you know, Borges and and uh, the moment in time that he represents as we move from um, the lengthy periods of a pre-mass media world where, you know, one presumably had uh, an entire summer at one's uh, Russian villa to read yeah. the latest 800-page opus to a post-Second World War mass media-influenced uh, environment where time is being I mean, incredibly constrained, um, the notion that, that we should question uh, length, I think, begins to become meaningful and has become very meaningful uh, in, our, in our present moment. I don't think that compression is everything or that there's simply an idea in fiction which can be summarized, but often there are ideas, and particularly in that modernist moment that Borges was writing from, um, and sometimes if, if it's just the idea, uh, don't waste time with more than the idea requires.
0: Right. Now, the story, The Book of Sand, is, it's very short and very compacted. And the idea that it's trying to get at has to do with, with infinity. So there, there's a certain, um, not contradiction, but, but oxymoron, I suppose, within this story itself.
1: Yes, I think that the notion of a tiny uh, work of fiction, just two pages of The New Yorker when it first appeared, um, that is grappling with the idea of infinity strikes me as, as, as perfectly Borgesian and also perfectly um, human. Uh, I was watching uh, an episode of Cosmos with my kids, this documentary series, and at one point there's a discussion. Uh, my children are, are very young, you know, eight and five, but they were really into Cosmos. And um, there's a discussion about how infinitely large, like the stars in the galaxy, um, and infinitely small, like the components of an atom, uh, both kind of go on forever, and there's an arbitrary point uh, uh, in the middle um, where we find ourselves. And, uh, and so, you know, what is infinitely small and what is infinitely big kind of depends on your vantage point. And so, for me, this tiny, tiny story about the biggest, biggest things does feel uh, a perfect starting point for Borges and also for conversations about the kind of issues that he is interested in.
0: Wonderful. Well, we'll talk some more after the story, and now here's Mosin Hamid reading the book of sand by Jorge Luis Borges, translated from the Spanish by Norman Thomas Di Giovanni.
1: The book of sand. Thy rope of sands, George Herbert. The line is made up of an infinite number of points, the plane of an infinite number of lines, the volume of an infinite number of planes. The hypervolume of an infinite number of volumes. No, unquestionably, this is not more geometrico, the best way of beginning my story. To claim that it is true is nowadays the convention of every made up story. Mine, however, is true. I live alone in a fourth floor apartment on Belgrano Street in Buenos Aires. Late one evening, A few months back, I heard a knock at my door. I opened it, and a stranger stood there. He was a tall man, with nondescript features. Or perhaps it was my myopia that made them seem that way. Dressed in grey, and carrying a grey suitcase in his hand, he had an unassuming look about him. I saw at once that he was a foreigner. At first he struck me as old, Only later did I realize that I had been misled by his thin, blonde hair, which was, in a Scandinavian sort of way, almost white. During the course of our conversation, which was not to last an hour, I found out that he came from the Orkneys. I invited him in, pointing to a chair. He paused a while before speaking. A kind of gloom emanated from him as it does now from me. I sell Bibles, he said. Somewhat pedantically, I replied, in this house are several English Bibles, including the first, John Wycliffe's. I also have Cipriano de Valeras, Luther's, which from a literary viewpoint is the worst, and a Latin copy of the Vulgate. As you can see, it's not exactly Bibles I stand in need of. After a few moments of silence he said I don't only sell Bibles I can show you a holy book I came across on the outskirts of Bikaner It may interest you. He opened the suitcase and laid the book on a table. It was an octavo volume bound in cloth. There was no doubt that it had passed through many hands. Examining it I was surprised by its unusual weight. On the spine were the words Holy Writ and below them Bombay. Nineteenth century, probably, I remarked. I don't know, he said. I've never found out. I opened the book at random. The script was strange to me. The pages, which were worn and typographically poor, were laid out in double columns as in a Bible the text was closely printed and it was ordered in versicles in the upper corners of the pages were Arabic numbers I noticed that one left-hand page bore the number let us say 40,514 and the facing right-hand page 999 I turned the leaf it was numbered with eight digits it also bore a small illustration like the kind used in dictionaries an anchor drawn with pen and ink as if by a schoolboys clumsy hand it was at this point that the stranger said look at the illustration closely you'll never see it again i noted my place and closed the book at once i reopened it page by page in vain i looked for the illustration of the anchor it seems to be a version of scriptures in some Indian language is it not I said to hide my dismay no he replied then as if confiding a secret he lowered his voice I acquired the book in a town out on the plain, in exchange for a handful of rupees and a Bible its owner did not know how to read I suspect that he saw the book of books as a talisman he was of the lowest caste nobody but other untouchables could tread his shadow without contamination he told me his book was called the book of sand because neither the book nor the sand has any beginning or end the stranger asked me to find the first page i lay my left hand on the cover and Trying to put my thumb on the flyleaf, I opened the book. It was useless. Every time I tried, a number of pages came between the cover and my thumb. It was as if they kept growing from the book. Now find the last page. Again, I failed. In a voice that was not mine, I barely managed to stammer. This can't be. Still speaking in a low voice, the stranger said, It can't be, but it is. The number of pages in this book is no more or less than infinite. None is the first page, none the last. I don't know why they're numbered in this arbitrary way, perhaps to suggest that the terms of an infinite series admit any number. Then, as if he were thinking aloud, He said, if space is infinite, we may be at any point in space. If time is infinite, we may be at any point in time. His speculations irritated me. You are religious, no doubt, I asked him. Yes, I'm a Presbyterian. My conscience is clear. I am reasonably sure of not having cheated the native when I gave him the word of God in exchange for his devilish book. I assured him that he had nothing to reproach himself for, and I asked if he were just passing through this part of the world. He replied that he planned to return to his country in a few days. It was then that I learned that he was a Scot from the Orkney Islands. I told him I had a great personal affection for Scotland through my love of Stevenson and Hume. You mean Stevenson and Robbie Burns, he corrected. While we spoke, I kept exploring the infinite book. With feigned indifference, I asked, Do you intend to offer this curiosity to the British Museum? No, I'm offering it to you, he said, and he stipulated a rather high sum for the book. I answered in all truthfulness that such a sum was out of my reach, and I began thinking. After a minute or two, I came up with a scheme. I propose a swap, I said. You got this book for a handful of rupees and a copy of the Bible. I'll offer you the amount of my pension check, which I've just collected, and my black-letter Wycliffe Bible. I inherited it from my ancestors. A black-letter Wycliffe, he murmured. I went to my bedroom and brought him the money and the book. He turned the leaves and studied the title page with all the fervor of a true bibliophile. It's a deal, he said. It amazed me that he did not haggle. Only later was I to realize that he had entered my house with his mind made up to sell the book. Without counting the money, he put it away. We talked about India, about Orkney, and about the Norwegian Jarls who once ruled it. It was night when the man left. I have not seen him again, nor do I know his name. I thought of keeping the Book of Sand in the space left on the shelf by the Wycliffe, but in the end I decided to hide it behind the volumes of a broken set of The Thousand and One Nights. I went to bed and did not sleep. At three or four in the morning i turned on the light i got down the impossible book and leafed through its pages on one of them i saw engraved a mask the upper corner of the page carried a number which i no longer recall elevated to the ninth power i showed no one my treasure to the luck of owning it was added the fear of having it stolen and then the misgiving that it might not truly be infinite these twin preoccupations intensified my old misanthropy I had only a few friends left I now stopped seeing even them a prisoner of the book I almost never went out anymore after studying its frayed spine and covers with a magnifying glass I rejected the possibility of a contrivance of any sort The small illustrations, I verified, came 2,000 pages apart. I set about listing them alphabetically in a notebook, which I was not long in filling up. Never once was an illustration repeated. At night, in the meager intervals my insomnia granted, I dreamed of the book. Summer came and went, and I realized that the book was monstrous. What good did it do me to think that I, who looked upon the volume with my eyes, who held it in my hands, was any less monstrous? I felt that the book was a nightmarish object, an obscene thing that affronted and tainted reality itself. I thought of fire, but I feared that the burning of an infinite book might likewise prove infinite and suffocate the planet with smoke. Somewhere, I recalled reading that the best place to hide a leaf is in a forest. Before retirement, I worked on Mexico Street in the Argentine National Library, which contains 900,000 volumes. I knew that to the right of the entrance, a curved staircase leads down into the basement, where books and maps and periodicals are kept. One day I went there and... Slipping past a member of the staff and trying not to notice at what height or distance from the door, I lost the book of sand on one of the basement's musty shelves.
0: That was Mosin Mohammed reading the book of sand by Jorge Luis Borges, translated from the Spanish by Norman Thomas Di Giovanni. The story appeared in the New Yorker in October of 1976 and was included in a collection of the same name. So Moson, the story begins with this sort of um, delineation of all the things that are infinite within the familiar world of geometry. Why do you think Bohr has opened that way? Is he is he trying to make this idea of infinity sort of more palatable to the reader by by showing it has some base in logic?
1: Well, I think um, the allusion uh, that he is making here with the idea that. Uh, uh, there are an infinite number of uh, points in a line and lines in a plane, et cetera, um, there's, a, there's a longstanding, uh, uh, I guess, paradox, which is that if there are an infinite number of points um, and we move between these points, um, in theory, it should take us an infinite number of time to cross an infinite number of points. And yet, I can move from the seat where I'm sitting across the room in two seconds. Uh, it doesn't take an infinite amount of time. And so what we're being presented with is this madness that, on the one hand, there are these infinities, and on the other hand, they disappear kind of into nothing when examined um, and for me is is uh, is part of the craziness of of what this story is going to lead us into, which is the contemplation of infinity uh, makes everything else start to become distorted and unreal.
0: I suppose that n- geometry in- encompasses the theoretical infinities and and what what Borges is about to encounter in the story is a, is a concrete infinity of some kind.
1: Yes, he's going to feel it. And, and I think that's, that it's also you know, worth bearing in mind that you know, geometry, as you say, um, is, is theoretical infinities. Um, but so is prose and so is language. Um, written language is, is made up of these symbols um, and, uh, and language itself in interpretive nuance Um, you know, between your understanding of any particular word and my understanding of any particular word is similarly a million possible gradations. So he's moving us from geometry and, I think, similarly, language um, into the realm of something that you can touch and feel and see.
0: So why do you think he follows that with this kind of disclaimer saying, you know, okay, all those other stories told you that that they were true, but this Crazy story actually is true. <laughs> why? Why the special pleading?
1: Well, um, you know, the, for me, there's uh, there's something just so beautiful about the way the story begins. There's um, incredible humor and seriousness bound up in almost everything Borges writes. So he's about to tell us a completely preposterous story, um, and he's asserting that this one really is true. And and I think he's setting up yet another paradox, another one of these Borgesian labyrinths for us to explore, which is, um, you know, that 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 of course none of the other stories that pretend to be true are entirely true, whether they are fiction or nonfiction. Each one is only an attempt to represent something, which is not in the form of words, but presumably in the form of actions and people and other things, physical objects, um, and that this thing, which can't possibly be true. Is um, it perhaps participates in a kind of truth um, that we must try to grasp? Uh, you know, it, it's it's a very strange and Borgesian situation um, where he's simultaneously telling us that every other story um, is not true and claims to be true, um, and this one does the same. The impossibility of trying to express what we mean, um, and yet the utter earnestness of that attempt, which is the only way in which we human beings can communicate with other members of our species.
0: So do you think he's implying not that this sort of fantastical image is actually true, but that it embodies a truth?
1: Well, I think that um, it seems that to me, his idea of what true is, is a very slippery one. So um, for Borges... Uh, the notion of what is true and what is real is never quite clear. Uh, you know, he, he is writing a story which has elements of, of realism. The way in which we encounter infinity in this story, the, the book that we encounter, um, is so real, and yet, of course, not. And, and I think for Borges, the notion that there is no such thing as real is a very important notion. Um, you know, we have understood, uh, subsequent to Borges, uh, that our conception of the self is an artificially manufactured thing, that we are these complex biological machines. Um, and when we're turned on, so to speak, we create this notion that you are Deborah and I'm Mosin, and here are our stories about ourselves. And that's how we understand ourselves. And yet we constantly behave in ways that contradict those stories and contradict our understanding of what ourselves Um, actually uh, is. So the self is a fiction. But similarly, our relationship to the world around us, you know, the physical object of the chair that I'm sitting on is actually a mostly empty cloud with a few atoms scattered across it. (laughs) So it seems to me that Borges' sense of what is real is bizarre, um, but also perhaps much more honest (laughs) than the rest of us who insist on pretending things are real that actually aren't.
0: I think it's interesting that in this story that has uh, that sort of tries to get at something universal, he gives us these very specific details. Um, for instance, this gray, gloomy, specter-like salesman who happens to come from the Orkneys, um, <laughs> which seems out of place in, in Buenos Aires and, and so on. Why, why do you think that Bible salesman is Scottish?
1: Well, I think one of the uh, most wonderful things about Borges is he is such an international writer. He's the ultimate globalist, you know, cosmopolitan. And that's one of the reasons why I first fell in love with him, that I'm reading this, you know, presumably Argentine writer who's sort of quoting from indian scripture you know arabian fantasy uh you know east asian uh, uh, uh philosophical thought um he he bounces around the world in you know and he's right coming to us from a from a distinctly pre-wikipedia pre-google era um with this incredible facility uh you know this incredible knowledge Of the world, and so and so, when you begin to examine the details that appear in Borges and that appear in this story, um, first there's this amazingly striking feature of of the cosmopolitan nature of those things. That here's somebody from Scotland. But even in talking about Scotland, we've sort of launched forth into, um, you know, Hume versus Burns, um, into Stevenson, you know, the author of, of uh, Treasure Island and, and Jekyll and Hyde. And we are uh, reminded that the rulers of the Orkneys were Norwegian Jarls. Um, almost everywhere we look in Borges is this is this layer upon layer uh, of detail um, coming to us from all over. Uh, geographically, scientifically, different disciplines. And so it it lends an incredible power, I think, to these bizarre uh, fictions in that he's speaking with such authority of such specifics. How could this possibly be invented? How can we have these details not be true? They're so unexpected from all over and each one has such depth to it
0: and there's that, that hilarious moment where the, the salesman corrects him and says no no it's not Hume that you love it's it's Burns. <laughs> you know?
1: Exactly. Um,
0: yeah. <laughs> can't conceive of, of, of this random person having an affection for Hume instead of Robbie Burns. But,
1: um, <laughs> yes and, and, and in a sense you know he might be right because um, the salesman might be more right than Borges because uh, you know who is the the writer that one would associate um, you know, you've said you love Stevenson. Um, surely the other Scott you admire most is not Hume. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but also what's very interesting in all of this is, you know, in every one of these illusions, you begin to see an infinite layer of meanings. And, and who knows to what extent these are intended. I tend to think they probably are. Um, but, you know, in Hume is this figure who is, um, you know, an empiricist, a rationalist. Uh, quite possibly uh, an atheist. And the salesman, of course, is talking about Bibles and and sacred books, mm-hmm. holy writ. Um, and and so there's, there's even being introduced into this question, into this comparison, a notion of, you know, what is your religious position? And this happens in virtually every Borgesian detail, that once you begin to examine it, it's not just, you know, some little bit of coloring or shading it is itself a potentially you know micro borgesian departure
0: yeah yeah everything just opens up and unfolds
1: absolutely <laughs> on
0: that question why does this book this infinite book why do you think he has it come from india and specifically purchased from an untouchable
1: well um i don't know uh, is the short answer i think very often in borges um there are provocations that can lead us into different directions. It's unclear to me if Borges intends um, symbolism in the way that we often think of that expression, uh, that that this thing is a signifier of that thing. But rather, he's opening up avenues for us to go down. So, so once he's introduced the notion that this text comes from India and is therefore, you know, is this sacred text from this place, he's bringing in this... Uh, other world, this uh, other belief system, this um, uh, unknown uh, uh, area uh, to the people of Scotland and to the people of, of, of Argentina. And yet it doesn't remain unknown because what begins to happen very quickly is that he tells us that the person who um, who gave up this book uh, originally to the salesman uh, is an untouchable. And he tells us that, that such a person, if they're a shadow, uh, contact somebody else. Uh, even that has the effect of contaminating that person. And so already he's setting up so many resonances within this presumably Indian context uh, for this story to come. Um, the element of contamination that, that, of course, that a book, any book, uh, has upon us when we encounter it, that we are no longer pure when we've read something. Um, in the moment of reading itself, we become unpure, that there is no way for any of us to contain a text within us and remain purely ourselves. Um, all of these things begin to happen. I don't think it's, it's a simple, he did it for this reason. It's just, um, if you choose to gaze in this direction, you know, here's a rabbit hole. But, but for me, what I really enjoy is none of this stuff is flippant or superficial. Um, it actually is you know, remarkably fertile terrain you know, to talk about, think about, or read.
0: Yeah. Do you think that by making it an Eastern text rather than um, a Christian Bible, he's sort of preempting any accusation of, of blasphemy or, you know, if you made a Christian Bible infinite in this way, perhaps people would have read it quite differently?
1: It's an interesting question. Um, uh, he, he might well uh, be avoiding that particular danger. Uh, by making this sort of an Eastern text. One of the things I like about Borges is he doesn't situate the exotic any more in one place than another. So it's not that India is more exotic uh, in in the world of Borges than Argentina or London. Um, He sort of discovers the exotic in what is close to his home, and he touches upon the human and the universal and things that are far. Uh, so whereas I think many writers, I would maybe be uncomfortable with you know, the notion that we are going to India to bring forth this uh, uncanny, exotic, impossible thing. In the world of Borges, uh, that is done so democratically uh, that I'm, I'm not concerned about that. As far as the danger of speaking of religion uh, in this way, I can't remember uh, now. How often Borges grapples with Christianity in this specific sense, uh but it is possible that he is doing this in part so that it is not a specifically Christian predicament or something that he could be accused of in the context of blasphemy
0: yeah what what do you think makes it so makes this book so frightening or unsettling or, or monstrous, especially when it says right on it that it's the holy writ and and perhaps the word of God should, by definition, be infinite. And yet it's terrifying.
1: I think that's right. I mean, I think that um, the infinite is terrifying or potentially terrifying or also terrifying. And, uh, you know, is this not what a religious text or an encounter with the divine should feel like? Completely overwhelming and potentially frightening, you know, deeply unsettling. And in Borges's own... Narration of the events, both characters, the salesman and our uh, narrator, um, mm-hmm. are happy to part with you know a Bible. In in the narrator's case, a, a very very expensive and rare uh, Wycliffe Bible, um, the first you know English translation of the Bible, for this book, um, suggesting that it has even greater value than that text. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in some senses. You know, there is the possibility that Borges is setting this up as the perfect religious book. But, um, but also that in that perfection, in that divine, infinite nature and attraction is something terrifying. Um, I often think of Borges as, uh, as quite a Sufi writer. And I, I felt this from the first time I, I read him. And of course, there are Sufi themes that appear in Borges from time to time explicitly but it's more of a sensibility so in in the strand of islamic mysticism that we call sufism one of the central themes of how one thinks about spirituality or one's relationship to the divine is the love that a moth has for the flame of a candle and Mm -hmm. um that was a starting point for my first novel in fact which is called moth smoke which is sort of a an exploration of what happens after consummation of this infinite love in a way but right, but it's, it's this lethal. theme of the moth and the candle, yeah, this, this it is lethal exactly. It, it 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 you know, the the Sufi is presented with this choice that the contemplation of the divine and the quest to become one with the divine and to uh, achieve a connection with the divine, is also the a quest which involves the loss of oneself, and and that is terrifying. The lover who is the moth drawn to that flame, there is something also monstrous to that because. The moth will be consumed and in this this sense of this thing that compels us pulls us towards it, this beloved so to speak, but also this fear of what will be lost, this horror and so this this notion that the relationship of human beings towards the infinite towards the divine um, does have abject terror mixed in with complete all-consuming desire. And and that's something that Borges touches upon better than almost any other twentieth century writer that I can think of. And so I I tend to think that in Borges we see so many echoes of of you know traditions that are not what we imagine to be sort of the Western canon, so to speak. Uh, Even in in terms of and this might be going a bit too far with it, but I've I've always felt sort of a profoundly in sync with Sufism feeling to Borges. That, that many Sufis will talk of, of two different ways in which we can uh, approach enlightenment. One is to gaze out upon the universe and to see ourselves reflected in the universe. Uh, and that is one mode of, of, of enlightenment. And the other one is to gaze within ourselves and to see the universe reflected within ourselves. And these two ideas of the infinity without and the infinity within and our mirroring to me, Borges does a better job of, of describing that than just about any recent writer I can think of.
0: And then there's the, the sort of joke or irony of his hiding the book behind um, A Thousand and One Nights, uh, and especially a broken set of A Thousand and One Nights, this, this sort of volumes uh, of stories told to preempt death that seem to go on almost infinitely. Um, what do you think of the, the juxtaposition of those two books?
1: Well, I think that's exactly it, is that it's not a coincidence that uh, that this text is uh, initially placed behind a broken set of Thousand and One Nights. Um Thousand and One Nights, of course, is uh, the series of tales that is told to keep the teller, sherazad alive, uh, as she tells a story every night. And at the same time, these are tales of fantasy uh, that are of a domain um, not entirely separate from that of Stevenson. Uh, Jekyll and Hyde and Treasure Island are, you know, are Scottish Thousand and One Night-ish tales. So Borges, yes, I think in terms of positioning these things, he's he's nesting all these different traditions, one with the other, and finding how incredibly um, complementary they are.
0: There's another... um angle to look at it from, which is not the, just that the sort of infinite word of God is terrifying. But if you're a writer, particularly one who tends to write very short pieces, <laughs> is the prospect of an infinite book also terrifying?
1: Well, I think that uh, um, for every writer, when you're starting a new book, it feels like it just might be infinite. Um, the, the, the terror <laughs> of writing anything. <laughs> you know, that's why the blank page is, is the most frightening thing any writer can possibly encounter. A couple hundred pages of, of manuscript that needs some work, that's a challenge, but it's not terrifying. But that empty page um, uh, with uh, infinite possibilities in front of it and infinite length of time that it could take um, scares the hell out of all of us uh yes i think the infinite text is is the ultimate uh writer horror um it's also in a weird way uh the ultimate you know reader predicament as we are discussing this and sort of we're talking about you know what 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 meanings you're deriving from it what meanings i'm deriving from it uh the notion that readers can get uh, uh a a infinite number of meanings out of something uh is also a very unsettling notion, you know, that we, I think, often read in the hope that we can understand what the writer is trying to communicate or that we can participate in an experience which other readers have also participated in. Um, and the idea as a reader that maybe we won't, maybe we'll just get our own very weird take on things, uh, is itself, you know, potentially quite frightening, I think, for a reader.
0: <laughs> and then this poor narrator, he finally loses this this book in the library. But he hasn't lost it. And he, he says, you know, he makes that mention at the beginning that the salesman has this kind of gloom uh, emanating from him, as it does now for me, he says. Um, so he has perhaps permanently been contaminated by his contact with this book? Is that the, that the idea?
1: I think that, um, that books are a contamination, that uh, um, the act of reading is a very unusual act. It is the only time in our lives when we sit by ourselves, alone, solitary, um, and we have our own thoughts within us, and yet we contain at the same time the thoughts of another human being, the writer. And, And we're still ourselves, and yet we're not just ourselves. We're something else. We're this weird hybrid being in that moment with the thoughts of two people inside it. Um, that is a, a fundamentally contaminated state, and of course, you know, contamination. Um, when you flip contamination, what you wind up with is fertility and hybridity. You know, that's the way our species procreates. We take two different genetic codes and mix them together. Um, nature finds incredible fertility in this. Uh, but yes, uh, he has been contaminated by that book, um, but also. Potentially, uh, uh, he is fertile in a different way, having read it, although from the rather morose tone uh, of our Borgesian narrator, we feel much more contamination than fertility.
0: Uh, Borges had a a story in 1941 called The Library of Babel in which he envisioned a library of all possible books, some of which are just strings of of nonsense, Um, and again, an infinite possible combination of things. Do you think that he's returning to that theme, or do you think this one is different?
1: I think that this one uh, is different. I think I think Borges is often returning to this theme, um, the theme of the infinite, what it means uh, and particularly what it means as a text or texts. In this case, it's a book with, you know, infinite pages. Uh, in that case, it's a Bible with a library of Babel with infinite books. But I think that in that sense, Borges was um, is at the cutting edge of a direction in which humanity is going. Um, you know, we are now in the internet, um, increasingly uh, human-machine integrated age that we are in, uh, encountering this. You know that that um, the internet is 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 like Borges's library, and even if it doesn't yet contain every possible book, um, it might very well soon. And, uh, and so the reason why, in a sense, Borges seems so utterly pressing and contemporary is it is so easy to imagine this relationship that we have in, in the library and in, and in this story as well um, as what the new textual world we live in looks like. Uh, a world of infinite texts. But also, I was reminded reading this story very much of, of Facebook, you know, that there's this, there's this domain, this sort of social media space that we call Facebook, uh, the Facebook of sands. And, and, uh, and in this domain, we are simultaneously writer and reader. We are looking at what other people are posting, and we are posting ourselves. And as we begin to do this, what we realize is there's an infinite number of ways in which we can represent ourselves, and that they can represent themselves. And it becomes an obsession, uh, this monstrous obsession that consumes our thoughts. We're continuously drawn to it. What what new is happening in the Facebooks of sands that are out there? And um, and even as we think about ourselves in this, in this world, what we're beginning to see is that, um, uh, you know, what we imagined as our memories and the past is no longer fixed. Um, we are curating what our past looks like. We are reshaping it. We're applying filters to it and commenting underneath it and changing the sequence of it and highlighting different elements of it. And in this way, even the immutable past is shimmering and changing and becoming something else. And so... I think that Borges is leading us in stories like this um, into a world that we somehow have a compulsion to enter.
0: It's also deeply deeply depressing to think that Borges saw the future and it was, it was Facebook. <laughs> you
1: know? I think that um, what, what Borges uh, was picking up on and why I think he's one of the most interesting science fiction writers and one of the most relevant writers to our current technological moment is this human desire for infinite capacity and for infinite possibility is very strong and we are giving birth to technologies that in theory are supposed to give us that you know machines that can learn places where we can represent ourselves in a million different ways and connect with people all over the world etc cetera, etc cetera. and i think that you know as humanity begins to interface with increasingly intelligent technology what starts to be born are borhaesian scenarios, um, and our discomfort in these scenarios, and the, the idea that we feel fundamentally sort of terrified and attracted and perplexed and uncertain, I think that Borges had put his finger on something which the technology of his time made feel like fantasy, but the technology of our time um, has begun to make feel like uh, like forecasting or something prescient. Uh, there's something very uncanny about how technology and human beings today interact in ways that are Borgesian.
0: So he was—he was actually correct when he said at the beginning of the story that this—this this one is completely true.
1: It is completely true. You just don't know it's true yet.
0: <laughs> right. So thank you so much, Mosin.
1: Thank you, Deborah.
0: Jorge Luis Borges, who died in 1986, was an Argentine short story writer, essayist, poet, and translator. His works translated into English include Labyrinths, The Aleph and Other Stories, The Book of Sand in Shakespeare's Memory, and Collected Fictions. Mohsen Hamid, who was born in Lahore, is the author of Moth Smoke, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia, and Last Year's Exit West, a New York Times Best Book of the Year. His fiction has been appearing in The New Yorker since 2012. You can download 130 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, including two in which Paul Theroux and Hisham Matar discuss other Borges stories, or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcasts section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff and Kalalia of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.